early years were actually probably very normal um you know wonderful kind of supportive parents and and siblings and and we kind of learnt sailing as a family together and and started out just being the family who you know like many others goes along the weekends and that's what you do and we did as a family i was pretty reluctant i was the kind of shy hesitant one in those early years g'day i'm richard harris and thanks for joining me on real risk the adventure podcast uh, season two episode Three, we're right into it again. And I uh, just want to give a shout out to John Russell, who is the August winner of a free copy of Against All Odds. John, I'll be contacting you shortly and sending you out a signed copy. Thanks for listening and thanks to everyone who's sent in their comments. Uh, the podcast is, again, brought to you by Bremont, makers of exquisite timepieces made in the UK by enthusiasts and master craftsmen. And I love my Bremont S2000 dive watch very much. Keeps me on time, underwater, uh, regardless of depth. So thanks again to Bremont, without whose help this podcast would be very difficult to produce. Imagine spending 210 days at sea, sailing 24,285 nautical miles all the way around the planet, alone and unassisted. And then imagine that you're a 16-year-old girl. Well, that describes perfectly my next guest, a very well-known Australian woman, now in her mid-twenties, Jessica Watson. I think all of us here in Australia celebrated her success when she completed that successful circumnavigation in her little pink yacht, Ella's Pink Lady. She faced a lot of adversity as she prepared for her journey. She had to campaign tirelessly against her parents initially to, to get them on board from the age of 12 or 13 when she uh, became enamoured with this idea. And she faced all the usual challenges of fundraising, uh, gaining sponsors, building a vessel um, into something that would be seaworthy and safe enough. And then at the outset uh, had a near critical incident, which nearly cost her both her, her vessel and her life when she was essentially run over by a tanker as she sailed down from Brisbane to Sydney to commence her voyage. So I feel very privileged to have chatted to Jessica and I hope you enjoy her story as much as I did. I'm sorry about a few glitches with the audio, the curse of remote podcasting in the world of the coronavirus. Jessica Watson, it's such a thrill to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. No problem. Great to join. Now, in 2010, and obviously we're going to spend a bit of time talking about your, your circumnavigation of the world, alone and unassisted. And you, you set off in your yacht, uh, Ella's Pink Lady, and since then your life has been so different in so many ways. Did you ever imagine that uh, or even understand the impact that that voyage was going to have upon your life? No, I mean, <laughs> um, not at all. I had no idea where it was sort of going to lead and um, I, I suppose I have to say, though, that it's, it's impossible to think about what it might have been like, you know, if it wasn't for the voyage, because the, you just can't separate the two. It's just been such a big part of my life and who have I become. I just couldn't imagine what life would be <laughs> had I not done the, undertaken the voyage. I feel like we're kindred spirits in a, in a way because we both 
we're just going about our business perhaps doing our thing and not really perhaps considering that it was anything particularly special but then we came back to this enormous um, media throng and uh, uh, thrust both of us into the limelight afterwards. Um, how did that fame sit with you? Because I think it's easier for someone my age, in my 50s, who's a bit older and a bit more cynical about life, but at, at the age of 16, just turning 17, that must have been mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's just a completely surreal experience and, um, you know, one that I definitely look back and go, I'm lucky to have had, that's for sure. I think luckily it was a positive experience. A lot of the reason behind that, I suppose, was I think just the, the pure adrenaline that came off the back of that voyage. And it just felt like there were so many incredible things that happened in those couple of years afterwards that I was able to sort of just ride through and, and obviously had really, really great people around me to kind of just navigate through that and, and enjoy a lot of what was good about it. And maybe I'm brushing over some of the kind of bad bits that came with it, you know, with the, the time that's passed. But um, the, the majority of it was surreal and, and weird, um, but, but mostly fun. <laughs> I mean, the media obviously can be your friend if you've done something wonderful like like you had, um, although it wasn't always easy for you, particularly building up for the journey, I, I gather, and we, we'll come back to the, some of that stuff perhaps. But um, you went on to become the 2011 Young Australian of the Year, which is amazing, and a successful author. And I just reread your book actually by way of research so I could uh, catch up on, on the story again. Um, you've been doing some corporate speaking, I think. You did an MBA. So obviously you got back and finished your schooling because that was part of the story. You were trying to, you were kind of studiously avoiding that on the on the boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. Um, I did for for a girl who basically ran away from school for a few years. That I did actually come back to study with with quite um, you know, a bit of passion for it and, and and kind of did it the long way around. But yeah, went on to do a degree and and then an MBA. So uh, yeah, I actually really came to really enjoy it and be passionate about it. But I think I definitely had to. Do it in my own way, you know. Sitting in a in a classroom really wasn't for me when I had, you know, the the passion to do this voyage, and I was so focused on that at the time. But that's not to say I don't love it and don't really really see the value in it. What did that look like when you came back from the circumnavigation? Did you go back to the classroom? Did you go back to formal schooling? No, <laughs> I'm not sure that was entirely going to work. It was, you know, those views were just such a whirlwind, and and I'm, I just don't know that would have would have worked at all. So. I, it took a bit of time because I was sort of firstly actually trying to get the book out. The publisher were very much a sponsor of the, the voyage as much as they were sort of a, a publisher at the end of it. Um, so that had to be done quite quickly, which I think was great because the book was very in the moment. You know, that was 16, 17-year-old me as, as you've just um, you know recently been through. Um, and, and I'm really glad about that, that it was so kind of me at the time and in the moment. Um but no, school, I ended up sort of taking some time to come back to it and did did night classes with this little private um, school that kind of helped people catch up on a subject where, you know, they'd not quite got the grade they wanted or, there you know, there, were, there was people who had actually finished up in the army and were looking to kind of, you know, start a new career. So it was this really cool bunch of people and, and quite a cool experience in a way to, to way to do school. But there was actually no one really kind of pushing me to do it. It was just me realising that, probably better. <laughs> well, your life, you know, even at that age, your life had been a bit different to the average kid, I suppose. And you talk a lot about um, life with your slightly uh, eccentric and, and fun-loving family, perhaps, uh, as, as a young person. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I mean, my early years were actually probably very normal um you know wonderful kind of supportive parents and and siblings and and we kind of learnt sailing as a family together and and started out just being the family who you know like many others goes along on the weekends and that's what you do and we did as a family i was pretty reluctant i was the kind of shy hesitant one in those early years um and then i think things got a little bit less normal when mum and dad I mean the original plan was actually just to sell the business sell the house and and do a bit of traveling in Australia before going back to New Zealand they were they were Kiwis so they were going to take the family back there um and and that traveling kind of just got a bit sidetracked um us kids were perhaps a little bit older than than that originally planned and we sort of fell in love with boating and sailing as a family and then I'm sure you know what I ended up kind of doing kind of um derailed things further and and obviously we're still all in Australia so plan plan changed a little bit but you lived on a boat for a few years and in a bus for a little bit of time Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was part of the traveling and the intent to sort of, you know, the intent was actually originally just to, to do a lap of Australia uh, on the bus. Um, and, and I think as a family, by that point, we'd actually sort of fallen in love with the water and ended up spending more time on the boat and living on the boat and traveling as a family, um, which obviously kind of really started, you know, stoking the interest in, in sailing for me as well. So that probably says something about you, though, Jess, that you say that's a normal upbringing to live on a boat and in a bus <laughs> and travelling around with your parents and your family. That sounds like an extraordinary childhood, incredibly lucky. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's each to their own. But I suppose when you start doing this and, and you realise, you know, we had friends and, and there were other families who were doing the same sort of thing. So I suppose it does kind of change your version of normal. And, and then, you know, when it came to actually time to set off on the voyage, by that point I had friends who'd done similar things and, you know, were surrounded by people who to some extent this was normal for. <laughs> I definitely think that's true. If you surround yourself with people who do an activity that and that becomes a normal way of life to you, you stop considering it as anything strange or extreme or, or whatever. And I, I certainly feel the same with my uh, expeditions that I'm involved in with my, my caving and diving. And, you know, for me, that's just the people I hang out with and that's that's a normal way to go. So maybe that's, that's the same for you. So your parents must have been, you know, a strong influence in your, uh, you know, that idea that started to gel in your very young mind that you were going to head off and sail around the world. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, I suppose one thing that's probably quite important about me and, and really has shaped me is that I'm quite dyslexic. So this was, it's fine these days, but um, a big struggle in my early years. And and this meant that I suppose your mum was really making a big effort to build up my confidence and reading to me all the time, which, you know, was ultimately the thing that did all the damage and inspired this idea, um, particularly Jesse Martin's book, um, you know, read to me as a, an innocent bedtime story and my siblings and that was really what what sparked the whole thing so um yeah that those efforts to sort of build up my confidence really went a bit further than you know they imagined <laughs> you know be careful what you tell your kids you sort of say hey you know you can do anything believe in yourself and back yourself and and then they throw this at you and i think they were very much like oh we were thinking maybe not quite that <laughs> <laughs> That's great, though. Yeah, what does your bookshelf look like now? Do you do you read now, or you're still not a big fan of reading? No, no, love it. I, I always, always have, and and that's what happened is is that mum really just helped me fall in love with books, and and despite the fact it was a struggle, um, you know, it was worth pushing through that struggle for, you know, for the stories. Um, so I've always been a huge reader, and it's always been a huge influence on me. And um, there's 
I can say bookshelf. I actually have just book stacks everywhere, which <laughs> some people say is not not the neatest. Um, but no, I mean everything, um, everything from the all of the classic adventure stories uh, and sailing stories. Um, but but also, you know, my second book um, was a novel for for young adults, and and there's a little bit of fantasy in that, which I suppose is also reflective of the stories that I enjoyed as a kid as well. Ah, good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I just had a quick look this morning to see what sailing books were on my shelves because my bookshelves are packed with adventures and uh, usually, you know, fiction. Uh, sorry, non-fiction works uh, like your like your book. And yes, I've got uh, Jesse Martins and and uh, Kay Cotty. And so, your quest to sail around the world was inspired by by this book by Jesse Martin and by others. Do you remember why you thought it was something? you wanted to do the reasons behind it <laughs> um yeah um i mean i think it was you know it was that was the thing that planted the seed but obviously there had been other books and you know what we were doing as a family and the people we were coming into contact with was obviously sort of having an influence too but it was kind of it was that book that kind of made the connection for me and made me realize well um you know Jesse's a normal person yeah extraordinary and an awesome adventure but um it made him real enough to kind of give me this connection between these adventurers and and these stories and, and help me kind of go oh maybe I could <laughs> could be in one of these books um so from there it was it was curiosity you know could I what would it be like and and just being absolutely fascinated by the idea of being so utterly alone in the middle of the ocean and how would you react and would you be able to cope and um, it, yeah, very much became about curiosity, and um, I think I spent the next couple of years just kind of thinking it through, and weirdly like putting up pictures of big waves and boats in my bedroom, and I'm sure Mum started thinking at that point that there was something slightly strange going on. Yeah, and, and, and then I suppose from curiosity, the the inspiration kind of evolved to um, wanting to challenge the status quo and becoming frustrated with you know, people not being able to get their head around what a young person and, and a young girl particularly, I suppose, was capable of. So it did become a bit of a, you know, desire to <laughs> make people think and, you know, really challenge their own thinking about what we're capable of. I, I was um, chatting to my wife about this upcoming conversation last night and I actually said to her, you know, every time I read one of these books, it makes me wonder whether I would have what it takes to do that kind of very prolonged journey and that very prolonged isolation and I said to her, I think everyone must ask themselves that question you know wh- whether um, that's something that I I could or, or would do and and the idea of it really appeals to me and she said no not everyone <laughs> not everyone asks themselves <laughs> that question so uh, but it must be something that most people must wonder surely you know could I do something like that yeah, I think so many people's reaction is just to straight out, oh, I wouldn't want to do something like that or I couldn't. <laughs> um, um, but, I mean, I think I think we all we all can. I think it's more about whether you'd want to, fair enough, if you don't. Like, <laughs> um, you know, I suppose the same applies to all sorts of adventure, um, adventures. I'm not sure how I would really want to get in the cold water of some dark, scary cave. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. But, um, I, I mean, I think certainly, you know, recent events have certainly proven humans are incredibly adaptive and um, able to do some pretty extraordinary things that we maybe don't realise we're capable of. You know, I think it's actually quite amazing how how um, how we can do these things if we want to. I agree. Tell me about the early conversations with your parents when you declared your interest in a circumnavigation. 
So um, it was, was my sister who I sort of mentioned it to first and then not long afterwards we were having this very serious family conversation about sort of plans and what we were going to do, you know, making decisions and, and Emily sort of said, you know, Jessica's got something to tell you and I went, oh, no, no. <laughs> really? Um, you, you're going to make me say it? Um, and I, I needed to say it, you know, I was becoming very serious about it by now and it was time to, to sort of really, you know, talk to mum and dad about it. Um, so I, this was the moment I had to had to tell them and for some reason I was just bawling my eyes out. I think I was, I was 13, 12 or 13, um, and, and I was just crying my eyes out. I don't know why, um, but I was, I think it's just reflective of how serious I was about it. You know, I was, I was dead serious about this and I was sort of telling them what was happening rather than asking permission which is or you know pretty terrible really but it kind of shows where my head was at already with it and your mum was immediately fairly supportive and your dad was uh, a bit more concerned is that correct yeah I think in a, in a nutshell um I think it's, it's a funny one because I think when your kid comes to you and tells you something like this you don't maybe take them completely seriously to start with and I think maybe for dad particularly he sort of just went oh yeah you know you'll move on <laughs> next year or something um you know you'll want to do something else so maybe maybe they didn't squish it straight away because they didn't really know what was going to happen and, and I joke about this quite often to parents who say you know what advice have you got and I'm like really I don't really qualified to tell parenting advice but I do say that you know squish it straight away because um <laughs> because then they put themselves in this position where maybe they couldn't say no later on because, you know, dad had realised it had become my whole identity and I was obsessed with it and, you know, to crush that would have actually been worse than having to yeah. go through with it, which is a horrible position I put them in. You know, I'm sure all adventurers kind of think about this at some point, but it's pretty cruel what we do to the people around us. Well, it is, and I certainly uh, am guilty of, of that as well. Obviously, anyone who has this slight obsession with uh, a particular pastime does uh, does it in a way that can be a bit selfish and and ignore the the needs of the people around them to some extent to achieve what we want to to do. But I find it amazing that a 12, 13-year-old girl or boy could get this idea in their head and actually stick with it through, you know, through puberty and all the other distractions that start to go on in the, at that time of your life. It, it shows a real single-mindedness, which is uh, very unusual, I would have thought. Yeah, well, I think it is funny to, to reflect on that a little bit and go, yeah, that was me at that age and, and maybe it's not everyone and, and fair enough if it's just not everyone, you know. Um, you know, you should just be kind of a bit carefree and, and enjoying that age. I don't think you have to be um, so, you know, focused and committed. Um, but that that was me. I was sort of deadly serious and, and completely um, committed and yeah, and, and maybe you know it's not maybe it's not the norm, but I think there are um, there are the young people out there who are who are serious and, and dedicated to things as well. A lot of people I speak to about expeditions talk about the difficulties of preparing for their journey. You know, a he heavy reliance on volunteers, scrimping and saving for equipment, the desperate search for sponsors. Uh, and of course, the schedules that all, always mean there's too many jobs to complete in in too little of time. What what was your experience like in that last say six months building up to the departure? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't just six months. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. I mean, I feel like that's the real story and and the extraordinary part of it all when you really reflect on it. And I was actually just chatting the other day to. Um, uh, probably you know, heard about Kaz and Jonesy who kayaked across the Tasman and, and walked yes. them 
yeah, with Antarctica. And I was chatting to um, to Justin the other day, and he um, he brought something up that I'd actually forgotten about in, in the early days of preparation. I'd talk to them, and I, I was talking to them. I'm pretty sure it was about their sort of risk, um, you know, mitigation strategy because they did an incredible job of that. And I was asking for some advice, and apparently I had sort of said, you know, I'll give you to the end of the week to to um, get back to me on this and then went and called them up on a Sunday night to say, all right, uh, you've had your week, where is it? Um, so, um, you know, this was, this was me as a, you know, um, as a young girl, as a, you know, as I started getting, you know, really serious about preparation as a 14, 15-year-old and um, I'm sure it was pretty annoying for people at times. Um, but that was the sort of spirit that um, it was approached with and, from there, you know, this incredible team of people did build, um, you know, a lot of them kind of just quite naturally as sort of advisors and mentors and, and becoming sort of bigger supporters. Uh, and then, you know, actually Don McIntyre, who was the the guy, another Australian adventurer who brought the boat for me, um, he suggested we put an ad in, in Trader Boat asking for volunteers. And, you know, we had an incredible response. And so uh, very lucky in, in the support that, I did have and I think it just really shows how how many people want to be involved in these things if you kind of put it out there yeah it was a it was an amazing experience working for you know a couple of years with a, a pretty extensive team of people um but certainly a stressful one at times there's no doubt about it yeah and that comes through in every book that I have ever read about other people's major undertakings is that that timeline and the pressure and the the money and you know people's you know investing all of themselves, their family and their finances to get this thing happening. You know, that test in a way is is great preparation for the actual voyage because if you can survive the 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 pre-voyage phase, then you're likely to have the mental toughness to to actually do it. So maybe that's the, the filter that gets people on the road and uh, filters out the people who probably shouldn't do it in the first place. Oh, quite possibly. <laughs> and um, and for me, it happened in a pretty extreme way with, with hitting a ship before I set off. And, you know, one of the last sort of preparation, uh, you know, sail, um, preparation sails, you know, colliding with this 63,000 ton ship on my first night out to sea was absolutely horrendous. And... <laughs> Um, you know, a terrible setback and pretty embarrassing, really. You know, as someone who was trying to say, hey, I've got this and, you know, I'm competent and ready to do this. But, you know, now I just look back and, and it's almost um, it's almost a bit of a cliche, really, to the extent that it was true that that setback really set me up for success with the rest of the voyage and not, not made everything easy by comparison, but it gave me this benchmark to kind of fall back on. And I would tell myself, you know, you got through that. You held your head together. You can do this too. You know, it was the last um, last little doubt I had in my own head whether I was going to fall apart and go back to being this, you know, scared little girl who I previously had been. So that that you know horrible incident gave me the opportunity to really test myself and and thankfully prove that I could kind of keep my head together. Well, let's talk a little bit about that incident because it sort of highlights some of the controversy that was surrounding your trip you know you were heading off to be as part of what you were doing you were going to end up being the the youngest person to ever 
circumnavigate solo and unassisted. And, of course, there were a lot of critics about whether that was an appropriate thing for someone your age and experience to be doing. And, of course, most of the critics who were most vocal didn't seem to really know you or your family or really know your your skill level and your mindset. Um, was was that a big stress for you and your family, almost these ac- accusations of of irresponsible parenting, I suppose, you know, is what it came down to? Yeah, yeah, and it was incredibly hard on on not just my parents and the wider family, but, you know, a lot of those those close team members who were so much part of it. Um, yeah, again, <laughs> you know, pretty horrible what I was putting them through in that regard and, and, and I think perhaps easier for me to deal with some of that because I was, you know, so single-mindedly focused on this voyage and, and had that kind of close team of people around around me. But, I mean, it was hard and, and you look back on some of the things that happened and you go, wow, you know, there was, you know, parenting experts, um, you know, coming out with some pretty bizarre criticisms and, and then just some blatantly inaccurate stuff that, you know, did seem very unfair. And, and it was that case of, Actually, there was no one who was a sort of vocal and, you know, credible critic who actually knew about the preparation, knew what we were doing. So it was unhelpful. Um, you know, it was sort of, yeah, this silly criticism. I, I think the perfect example was someone who was portrayed in the media as a, a yachting expert who said I wouldn't make it because I would starve because I couldn't possibly fit the food on board. Um, and obviously, you know, the previous record holders and previous voyages had all you know, not starved and, and had fit the food on board. So it was just sort of criticism that's just sort of so useless and um, irrelevant and, and that became pretty annoying and distracting. Can you describe the, the night of the incident with the tanker for us? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I think to set the context, it had been years of build-up and, you know, the media attention building and um, to finally set off on this sea trail to sail down to Sydney and start the voyage, it was kind of, you know, a huge moment and a sense of relief. And um, the the night was quite beautiful, quite calm. And I had popped down to get, you know, a five-minute kind of power nap, cat naps, um, be- because I was still quite close to shore and, and didn't want to be sort of, you know, getting longer periods of sleep. And for whatever reason, you know, there's a report that's um, rather thick if you want to read it, <laughs> an ATSB report on the incident, which is actually fantastic. You know, obviously things went wrong. The alarms that should have woken me didn't, and the the alerts that should have told me there was a ship nearby didn't. And you know, on the ship's behalf, um, they didn't bother avoiding me, um, which is you know the norm. And sailors know that the you know you can't expect big ships to get out of your way, and and the collision happened. Um, you know, I woke to to the rig being sort of torn off and, and being scraped down the hull of the the ship, and you know that's just obviously absolutely horrendous and something I had nightmares about for some time. Um, but what my head did was click into sort of a checklist mode and I'd utterly stuffed up. There's no doubt about that. But I sort of proved to myself that I could deal with it because I, my training sort of kicked in and all the scenarios that I'd sort of thought through about what would you do in a scenario, you know, in a situation like this. Um, and, and I did kind of what I needed to do to pull myself together and get the boat back in um, to shore the next day. And, and that was, you know, to face a media scrum and, and definitely not a positive media scrum. It was, you know, everyone demanding quite rightly to know what, you know, what I thought I was doing and who I thought I was um, when I'd so so completely stuffed up. I can't imagine a more low, a lower point in the whole undertaking to be so close to be heading off and then to, you know, nearly lose your life probably and, and certainly risk losing your boat and be back to square one. 
um, you did very well to rise above that. Yeah, well, it didn't feel like that. I know that's the strangest thing because that's really the way it was, but it honestly felt like I stepped away from that with more confidence and to me it was quite honestly the last piece of the puzzle to go, I could deal with that. Um, and, and I think that somehow must have rubbed off on the people around me who quite rightly at this point must have been going, what on earth are we supporting? Oh, it sounds like a real turning point. Hello, this is Giles English, the co-founder of Bremel Watch Company. We're proud to be supporting Dr. Harris with the show, an ambassador and a friend of the brand who symbolizes the core of Bremel with its tested beyond endurance motto. As an engineering company, we specialize in the manufacturing of beautifully made mechanical aviation watches that are built to be worn in the boardroom or at Mount Everest. With our strong military links, we work with adventurers all over the world. Now, to learn more, please go to bremel.com and read about the likes of NIMS who's just smashed the record for climbing the 14 highest peaks in under seven months and see the watches wearing. Well, thank you for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Do you remember having pretty honest conversations with your family about the risks of the trip, and including the risk of dying or being lost? Yes. I'm not – maybe we never quite used the words, but yes. Um, yeah, there were there were honest conversations. I suppose I'd pretty quickly started moving the conversations towards well, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do to make it safer? You know, this is the right boat. This is the right equipment. Um, so maybe I was slightly avoiding it um, by doing that, and maybe they were too. Yeah, we, we were definitely moving the conversations to well, if this happens, we'll do this. You know, like um, so I suppose coming back to the planning and, and kind of feeling like that there were answers to the questions. Yeah, maybe everyone was was dealing with those unanswered questions by just dealing with the risk mitigation strategies and and focusing very hard on your safety. Uh, probably probably the best way for everyone to cope with with that. You know, your parents obviously very generous to let you do this or encourage you to do this and support you, but that must have been very much on their mind, obviously. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not sure. You know, encourage. I think I made it quite clear yeah. that I was doing it when I was 18. If um, <laughs> if um. <laughs> If they weren't coming along with the ride and, and um, you know, perhaps we would have ended up doing it in a way that wasn't as safe with, with without their support. So it was a reluctant kind of support maybe in that regard. Um, but, yeah, maybe that's the way you deal with it. And, and I think it is interesting when you think about adventurers. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this so many times that so many adventurers actually seem to be these very considered risk-adverse people I mean, ultimately, the point of adventure, right, is that there is that little element of unknown. You don't, you don't go out there because you know exactly what's going to happen. No, absolutely right, and I don't think anyone would would do these activities if there wasn't a small risk, because that's the whole point is to is to test yourself and and prove to yourself what you're made of. And um, by doing that, I think it's really important for our own personal growth and and resilience. Have you have you been? Spreading that message now uh, that this is all under your belt, you, have you been out there spreading the word? Um, I suppose so in, in many, many ways, um, you know, in, in those years afterwards and, and things like the Young Australian of the Year and um, other other programs and other work. I've uh, been to a lot of schools, which is fantastic, and then, um, you know, through sort of corporate speaking and, and different um, experiences, I have been able to speak about it a lot, which has been a, a journey in itself. Um, you know, ten years now um, since the voyage, so 
you know, I've obviously changed a lot and at times I have worked pretty hard to kind of escape it a little bit as well. Um, you know, I want to do new things with my life and, and I've kind of, I think, maybe finally accepted that I'm never going to be, perhaps no one has anything other than the young girl who sailed around the world in the pink boat, but um, I do, you know, I do need a career and I do need other things to keep myself um, challenged and, and inspired. Yeah, it's a bit strange to be defined by one event in your life like I am now the that guy from the Thai cave rescue and you know that that at times I feel like that's something I want to escape from but at the same time it's such an enormous privilege to have been part of something special and I'm sure you feel the same way you just need to work out a way to incorporate it into your life rather than be completely defined by it yeah I'm all ears on advice for for that so um yeah I mean where are you with that that process of kind of getting your head around that and other days when you're just trying to escape it or oh well I spent the first six months trying to escape it because I didn't like you perhaps I just felt like well this is just a thing I did and of course anyone would have done the same if they had the same skills that that I and the other guys did and I was completely blown away by the reaction of the world's media and the interest to the event because it just didn't seem like a big thing to us, the people who were involved. And I don't know whether you had that sense, but um, I walked back into Australia into this storm that I completely didn't expect or anticipate. So uh, for the first six months, I just thought, well, if I just ignore it all, it will go away. But then the Australian of the Year uh, award of course made that completely unavoidable and of course you also feel an, a strong obligation to then give something back if you've been given given an award like that so that's when I, I flipped I guess and, and started to engage and maybe accept my responsibilities that I'd been hiding from slightly. Is Did, did the Young Australian of the Year have a big impact on you in that regard? Yeah, yeah, it actually feels like maybe a slightly similar experience. Um, I mean that was just extraordinary you know it was sort of you go there and you meet the finalists and and I was just so humbled by the fact that these were these really selfless incredible young people who you know had actually sort of really dedicated themselves to others and then to win the award over them just felt you know it felt horrible (laughs) um but then then it was a sense of well this has happened um I do need to embrace it and I do need to kind of make the most of it and and I suppose that kind of led to saying Yes, to as you know as many of those school tours as I could, and to taking on a few other roles, um, you know, like working with the United Nations World Food Program and and things like that. Um, but yeah, I just look back and realize you know how privileged I was, and, and I suppose how much it's probably shaped me as well. So it's yeah, it's an extraordinary experience. It's funny to hear you say what you just said because that's exactly the way I, I felt. You know, these people have, you know, battled and, and fought for these amazing social causes and injustices all their lives and, you know, here we are, these sort of one-trick ponies who have just done something that was actually kind of fun and kind of what we do anyway um, and be recognised by it felt very, very un, unworthy and, um, you know, people talk about the imposter syndrome and I think everyone has that but... Uh, I think it's what you do with the award that's important rather than maybe uh, why we received it. But anyway, enough about Absolutely. And, and you know, even <laughs> even talking about um, your adventure and, and promoting that, I think is something that's really important and that's something I think I've become increasingly passionate about and particularly obviously sailing and, you know, even my second book, which is based around sailing, I just want, want to see more people give it a go. And, and I think that's just awesome, that spirit of adventure that I really had through my childhood. And, um, you know, I want, want others to kind of find that. And it's, it's just awesome. So um, you're doing a good job promoting that. <laughs> 
Yeah, and that's exactly the message I'm trying to get out there, that uh, especially for young people to get off their screens and get outside and encourage their families to do things like uh, like your amazing childhood. Yeah, let's get back to your voyage because we need to hear a bit of nitty-gritty about the actual sailing. Um, what, what did it feel like that first day when you sailed out of Sydney Harbour after and to be able to put all this stuff behind you that had um, had been going on? Oh, a sense of relief um, and pride. Uh, you know, there were lots of tears and you wouldn't be surprised to hear it. Um, you know, the boat pulled away from the dock, but um, it actually felt like a lot of a lot of tears of, of pride and, you know, achievement for kind of how far we'd come as a team. Um, and then this sense of relief that, you know, this thing I've been thinking about and, and talking about for so long was finally actually underway. Uh, and I was expecting the first few weeks to be really tough. So it's a common experience for that first part of a, a voyage to be pretty miserable. You're adjusting to being alone. You're, you're potentially quite seasick. Um, but actually found it to be really pleasant, um, possibly mainly because the weather was really lovely. Um, so it was actually quite a pleasant start to the, the trip. And the voyage was about seven months, I think, 210 days. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Slightly slightly faster than we'd actually planned. So I think that was a, a really wonderful kind of mental thing throughout to actually be slightly ahead of schedule. It's incredible what that does for you to keep you kind yeah. of motivated. It's funny reading the book. The recurring theme is that um, when the weather's, um, you know, the strong winds and it's it's rough, you're actually into it and loving it even though it's uncomfortable and when it's calm and sunny and you know, you're flopping around with flapping sails, you're very frustrated because you're not making forward progress, even though it's a beautiful place to be. There's a real paradox there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a very, very common experience for, for many, many sailors. Um, you want to be making progress towards that next milestone. <laughs> with a, with a seven-month trip, can you remember how long it was before you suddenly thought to yourself, oh, my God, this is going to take a long time and, um, you know, I'm going to be alone for so long? Was it like day 10 or day 30 or day 50? Was there a point where, where it started to occur to you? There was there was a point a couple of weeks in that it was sort of, wow, this is real, it's finally happening. Um, and I thought it might be a bad thing, but it actually turned out to be a good thing. Something strange that so many people impressed upon me before I left um, was that, you know, remember to enjoy it. And I just kept thinking why are all these like really experienced adventurers and sailors telling me to enjoy it like to smell the roses like shouldn't they be warning me of something important and um you know to, to do the right thing and, and and you know keep yourself alive and instead they're telling me to enjoy it um but I, I do realize the importance of that now that I think you know for big things like this and you spend years and years working towards them and you kind of get out there and you're just busy rushing through it all and focused on the next milestone. Um, so I think I'm really grateful that I had that advice so so many times because I did get out there and kind of let it hit me and kind of realise, wow, look what's happening. Um, you know, this is this is real. <laughs> and I suppose in some way I was able to enjoy some of it. Of course, there were really, really bad bits too, but, um, you know, a lot of it was actually more fun than I expected. How much of the trip, I mean, in the book, there's a strong sense of you, you know, wanting to prove yourself to both yourself and, and the world, maybe. I mean, you, you you describe yourself as a very scrawny little girl and um, you'd been kind of underestimated by people, maybe. And was that a big part of the motivation for what you wanted to do, to prove something to yourself? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there's no doubt about that. Um, 
that yeah they're wanting to challenge the status quo and <laughs> make people think um and then yeah obviously I very much had something to prove for myself as well and yeah I suppose it is interesting in, in the years since that maybe the voyage has given me at least a little bit of a little bit of peace in that regard I've wanted to prove myself in other fields but you know I still love sailing and more than ever um but I don't feel the need to kind of go out there and you know need to pretend to be the toughest person <laughs> and and you know go and get cold and wet for um when I don't feel like it like I, I know I can do it so I don't really feel the need to do it all the time <laughs> unless I actually want to be well there's no doubt that your your mental and physical strengths were, were proven many times during the voyage can you tell us a little bit about some of those knockdowns in the southern ocean when um you know things got a bit sketchy yeah, I mean, knockdowns to the boat being rolled upside down by big waves, um, the sailing terminology. We as a team had, had expected them, had planned for them, which is a you know a strange thing to plan for, really. It's pretty, you know, pretty grim. But we sort of knew it was going to happen at some point. So to get through the first few storms, which weren't too bad, and then get to the Atlantic Ocean, so it's about halfway around the world, and a storm that hadn't, you know, been forecast to be as bad as it as it was continued to sort of get worse and worse. And that night, you know, there were four of these knockdowns. And the first few were, were pretty horrendous, um, but it was the third of these that were really dangerous. Um, the sort of the biggest of the, the roaring, you know, breaking waves. I was down below and I just heard it coming and the boat was actually picked up and upside down thrown into the trough of the next wave. And pushed well underwater as that wave broke on top of us um, and I know that it was well underwater because the EPIRB which is you know your emergency um, positioning device activated itself and that's that was the EPIRB that was designed to activate once the boat had sunk so you know I had, I had a few EPIRBs and this was the one that would automatically deploy if the boat was more than three meters underwater um, so no we had sort of three meters of water potentially on top of the boat for that EPIRB to deploy and, and obviously for, you know, the team back home to get that call from the rescue centre to say, hey, the EPIRB's been um, set off is just, you know, horrendous. And very, very luckily I was on the phone, you know, the satellite phone quite quickly after that um, to say, you know, things are really not good, but I am fine. The boat hasn't sunk more than three metres underwater. So, yeah, that, that, was, that was bad. That was the worst, I think, the really the most dangerous moment of the trip there were there were others after that but that was the one that you know I really was thinking wow you know is the boat going to survive this um you know and and without you know the boat holding itself together the chance of survival in those conditions is pretty pretty grim yeah I um, I mean it speaks a lot uh, to the preparation of the boat and the boat itself an SNS 34 um wasn't it that um you know it's obviously a very uh, seaworthy little vessel and well prepared very absolutely and and to kind of be able to look over the boat the next day and realize you know there's a few little things um you know dented up and sails torn and a few things bent but you know fundamentally the boat's fine was a huge confidence boost just to go hey wow it's been through the worst and it, it did what we set it up to do uh and absolutely no doubt that it was that boat that got me there i think somebody i once saw that kind of poised as a bit of criticism some I think it was a it was probably actually an old sailor saying oh it was just the boat that got her there and and I'm not sure why they meant that as criticism because it's entirely true and I, I take pride in that like it was the right boat um we could have got you know tempted by a faster more modern boat 
um, and, and potentially it might have been better and it might have got me there faster. But this boat was just so utterly proven. It's what all the previous record hookers had taken um, and, and it was just such a safe bet in that regard. Well, even if the boat could have sailed around the world by itself, you still had to um, sit inside it and endure the psychological challenges that go with that kind of voyage. I, I actually can't understand why people wouldn't go completely mad uh, in 210 days of, of talking to themselves and to the seagulls. Is that Was that an issue? <laughs> I mean, did you feel a bit bonkers at any time? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I do like to think that I'm really quite normal considering. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because you do think you assume that we can't we can't do that um, without going crazy. I mean, obviously, you know, did have lots of fantastic you know, communications with the satellite phone and um, writing blogs and things like that, um, you know, which people previously haven't had. But at times, I actually found that quite difficult to deal with because it almost interrupted your um, the headspace that you get in out there alone. Um, so yeah, it takes some adjustment, and, and maybe maybe not everyone could deal with it okay. Uh, I think we'd surprise ourselves. I think it's just kind of comes back to being quite extraordinary what humans can adapt to, um, and you've got to have that purpose, and it's got to be your choice to to be to be out there doing it. You know, I'm talking to a lot of people at the moment who perhaps are finding it quite difficult, you know, to deal with this isolation in Victoria or, or some of the other tough situations that you know people are in currently. And they're saying, I just don't understand how you did it. You know, um, you know, tell us how. Um, but it's that choice. I, I really think that that is so powerful. You know, I put myself out there. I hadn't been abandoned. You know, my team, I actually felt extraordinarily part of a team. And, you know, you've probably heard me saying we for, for that reason. Um, you know, maybe it's even the time when I felt most a part of a team. Um, so, it, you know, it wasn't lonely as such. It was just very isolated yeah i think it's very different to be doing something like this of your own free will versus being told you have to stay inside or being locked in a prison or you know to lose your freedom immediately makes your freedom so much more important but you you're out there of your own free will and um yeah i guess as you say that that helps you deal with with that isolation how would you describe yourself are you an introvert or an extrovert or i mean do you kind of recharge by being around people or are you pretty comfortable in your own in your own space yeah not probably surprising that probably more on the introverted end um not to say of course i don't love people and you know i really have enjoyed adventures and sailing with others as well but um yeah it's probably really no surprise that more you know i need to need that quiet time to recharge by myself was that weird when all the people jumped on your boat to sail uh, into Sydney Harbour? Did you kind of want them all to clear off again? <laughs> uh, no, it was it was a positive excitement. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe other adventurers is kind of you know I'm not sure if you've ever kind of felt this, but when when you're out in the open ocean for a long period of time, coming back to a port feels very um, like suffocating. You, everything is so close and seems so you know big and. Um, you know, tight around you. And that was that experience on absolute steroids. You know, it was all of this overwhelming experience of being near land and smells and colours and, and people all at once. Um, it was just an incredible sensory overload. Actually, that really resonated with me, um, the way you described that, because uh, even even when you sailed close enough to land to see more birds or get a whiff of of the land itself, uh, when we go caving, if you spend more than about twenty four hours underground, when you come back to the surface, 
the smell is so strong and the the warm air and all all the that sensory stuff that you've been completely denied for that that period of time underground where it's completely dark and totally silent obviously apart from the sound of water if there is is any uh, it's very very powerful so i can't imagine what it would be like after after uh, 210 days oh wow you had to think about the um uh the silence underground and coming back to it from that is um yeah wow that's <laughs> that's another dimension that i suppose at least at least i had it be now, one thing that has worried me a lot reading this book is your complete lack of skill at fishing, uh, Jess. Is it true that you only caught one fish in the whole voyage? Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty pretty bad because obviously, you know, months and months into eating tinned and freeze-dried food, you, you pretty enjoy some nice fresh fish. Um, but no, it was, it was a single fish the entire voyage. So, And not for lack of trying in those first few months particularly. I was pretty keen to try and catch something, but somehow didn't. You had the odd squid or flying fish land on the on the deck. Did you nibble on them? Yeah, yeah. So la- actually, later in the trip, when when a couple of squid <laughs> found found their way onto deck, you know, you'd, you'd often come up in the morning and find, um, you know, as they say, like kind of revealed uh, some flying fish or some squid on the boat. And I did actually turn um, turn one of those squid into a meal at some point. <laughs> so, what happened with your sailing after all of this? Did that continue to be a big part of your life? It did. It absolutely did. And I think for a couple of years there, I was toying with maybe taking it more seriously in a competitive direction and pursuing, um, I think, definitely offshore competitive sailing and um, did obviously do some projects like the the Youth Sydney Hobart, where we're the youngest ever team to, to compete in that race. Um, and, and, you know, took that racing quite seriously, but I am not really actually a, a, a wonderful competitive sailor and I don't think I have that competitive spirit. So it was something I enjoyed, but I did come to the realisation that actually this is not really something I want to make a career of. And and I think along the way there was also that realisation that actually I, I want sailing to be a hobby and a passion for life and, and not something that's a career. And so are you sailing uh, for leisure and relaxation still? Yeah, I mean, less so in recent months where we're, you know, currently not allowed to go more than 5Ks from our house. Um, so, you know, that, that has, hasn't been uh, the forefront recently, sadly. But, yeah, definitely, it's it's very much part of my life and, and my hobby and, and these days, obviously, weekends. Um, and and I, I think it's actually almost going back to that sailing for adventure that I sort of first fell in love with as a kid, you know, because that's what we did. We, we'd kind of sail off on, on a lake or you know, head off and, and as kids be, you know, drawing a, a map or a chart of the, the little bays on a lake and um, and that's something that I've gone back to doing and really enjoying recently. I've actually got a little trailer sailor and, you know, just kind of it's just that adventure going back to a small boat and messing about and, and lakes and things like that that I really, really love these days. Like Ratty from Wind in the Willows, there's nothing a lot better than messing around in boats. Exactly, yes. You're listening to Real Risk, the adventure podcast with Richard Harris. And that's, you know, that's the sort of adventure sailing that I think that, you know, everyone needs to, to give a go. Like, it's, it's just awesome. Oh, that's great. So what does the future hold for you? Um, you talked in your book about going back to a lot of these places and actually stepping ashore and, and traveling. Is that still something you'd like to do? Yeah, it is. Um, I, you know, I think one of the things I've been really lucky to do since the voyage is, is a lot of travelling with with different things, whether it be sailing or, or the role with the World Food Program and the like. 
Um, but yeah, more recently, I, I've actually these days got a, a corporate job uh, management consulting with one of the big four accounting firms. So that's a, a very different um, <laughs> world for me for now. And um, that's kind of quite, um, you know, keeping me quite busy. But I've definitely always said and, and still very much want to sort of do another lap and properly stop off along the way, you know, see everything next time. Not quite sure when that will be yet, with um, with all honesty, and, and I suppose I'm just enjoying those smaller kind of adventures and um, you know sailing locally for now. But fingers crossed, that, and also fingers crossed that the world's borders kind of open up again in the in the near future. Yeah, well, fingers crossed for Melbourne and Victoria. We're all we're all thinking of you guys at the moment. It's a it's a shocking state of affairs, but um, uh, you seem to be taking the brunt of it for the rest of the country. I, I read something in the paper a couple of days ago about a, a possible Netflix show about the voyage. Is that uh, likely to happen? Yeah, it, it is. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, they want to make a, a movie um, for, for Netflix, which is really incredible um, and quite surreal. Um, it's something that had been talked about for a number of years, but then Netflix coming on board and, and really sort of showing some intent to make it happen quite quickly um, has really kind of made it a lot more real for me. So it's, it's a weird experience and, and partly something that I've almost struggled with because it really means I'm never going to escape this 16-year-old girl in the king boat thing. But I think I've learned to kind of just you realise that actually it's just an extraordinary opportunity and I'm going to have fun with it. Um, you know, it's not something that you kind of get to do um, as part of normal life. So I'm definitely going to have fun with it and use it as a platform to hopefully, you know, tell lots of people about sailing and encourage them to give it a go. Uh, as well and and I think there's you know I think there's actually still maybe a little bit of a need to kind of still challenge the status quo um you know being my kind of original inspiration for the voyage so I kind of hope that the the movie does that a little bit as well makes people stop and think again that's great and is it based on the book it is sorry yeah the, the book and, and the story and, and I believe I'm sort of meant to play a role telling them um you know what happens and how it felt and um I don't really mind what they do with it. I think the main thing for me is just uh, as much as possible, I'd love for it to be technically accurate, you know, have the rope around the winch the right way and <laughs> things like that. That is so important to people who have technical hobbies like us to, um, you know, there's nothing more jarring than when you see something on television uh, about what we do and, and someone's just doing it all wrong. Uh, it uh, is very irritating. And, and so there's a couple of, uh, potential movie projects going on about the the Thai cave rescue, and I think all all cave divers and cavers around the world are just hoping that you know people have got their uh, masks on uh, the right way around, and you know uh, <laughs> not wearing pink flippers and things like that. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, to finish up with Jess, do you have a, a message for for young people and parents that you'd you'd like to share? Oh gosh, um, I mean, look, I think. I think maybe do 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 be audacious and and take on these big dreams. Um, you know, do do explore and um, you know and take on adventures and, and responsible risk taking. You know, <laughs> um, because you know it does lead to some pretty extraordinary things and and you know build some wonderful resilience and and, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so so do do be audacious and and give these things a go and, and dream big. 
Well, I think we've been singing from the same song sheet for the last couple of years, Jess. Uh, it's uh, it's fantastic to talk to someone who feels the same way about life as I do. I wish I was uh, 25 or 6 again and I could um, have all the amazing experiences that you've got ahead of you now. It's um, it's inspiring to hear someone who's still so full of life and has um, you know clearly got so many more adventures ahead of them. So I appreciate your time and it's been great to chat. No, thank you for having me and, and good luck packing all those adventures in. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. That's it for this episode of Real Risk. If you're a risk taker or know someone who'd be good for the show, please send me an email on admin at speleopix.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Subscribe, give me a rating, but most importantly, join me for the next one. We'll see you again on Real Risk. Real Risk.